0: We had a guest speaker last week, Jeff McGuire. How'd you like Jeff? Is he great? He is great. Good friend of mine. I understand you learned two things. The first one, he said that you'd be able to answer this question. What was his message about last week? Wow. You guys nailed it. I belong. Good. All right. That's great. And the other thing I think you learned from Jeff is nobody gets up early to leave, right? Didn't he, like, totally out my family as they tried to sneak out last week and, uh, So anyway, just so you know, it's really ugly if you try to get out early. Well, we are in this series called I.D., and in this series we are looking at the identity that God has given us. We're looking through the book of Ephesians, a New Testament book, uh, but don't turn there yet. Turn actually to Genesis 1. I'll get there in a second. But let's start off by looking at this uh, picture, and let me ask a couple of questions about it. This goes back to your art appreciation days. And uh, first question is, who painted this? Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh, okay, one of the greatest artists of all time. Uh, Does anybody know what the title of this picture is? The Starry Night, awesome, you guys are nailing it. Okay, now it gets a little harder. Okay, there was a pop song about this picture and Vincent Van Gogh, sung by who? Don Don McLean. Craig, that's not fair, you know all the trivia. Okay, I, I know you all knew that, Don McLean. And Craig, because you answered that, you can go ahead and sing that song for us. <laughs> That's beautiful, all right, sorry, sorry. You guys know that song? We're not gonna sing it, but okay. All right, Vincent Van Gogh. Let me tell you a little bit about this picture. You know, he painted it actually when he was in a psychiatric hospital. This was actually looking out the window of his room. Uh, it was uh, in a little southern town in uh, France. And he had had a very rough year the year before. And some of you know the story that uh, sort of a romance that went bad. He ended up cutting off his ear just out of, in depression, he cut off his ear. And so he was kind of a tormented soul. And he was in the psychiatric hospital. He actually painted it at nighttime, which was not done in that day because there was no electric lights. And he would hang candles around the canvas and candles around the brim of his hat so he could actually see what he was painting. And this is what eventually came out. Uh, And people that have critiqued it and people that have given interpretations of it believe that this was basically the statement that he was making. He was making a statement that this world is hard and it's dark and there's a lot of despair and there's a lot of hard things in it and that's sort of pictured by the black colors and the dark blue colors the night. But there was always a hope in Vincent van Gogh that there there was opportunity for hope that there was light, that there was the possibility of life. And so he, he makes these vibrant colors and sort of these really uh, powerful strokes that, to sort of create movement in the sense that there, there is something. There's got to be something in a world that is full of despair and darkness and hardship. There's got to be something more. And many people believe that this not only is the greatest work that Vincent van Gogh ever made, but that it's one of the greatest paintings, maybe the greatest painting in history, just because of how it's set up. This is truly a masterpiece, truly a masterpiece. And I want you to think about masterpieces for a second. Okay, some of you are into art, and you look at this and you think, masterpiece, and you know, you, you appreciate it. And then there's some of you, uh, probably more like me, and it's like, I look at that and I think, you know, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. But I, it doesn't speak to me as well. But there's other kinds of masterpieces. There's the masterpiece, like, for those of you that like sports, there's the masterpiece when some athlete has a game or does some kind of a, a feat that you're just, like, in awe of. And you look at that and you just go, that's, that's just a masterpiece. I can't believe somebody is that skilled, can do that kind of work. Or maybe you go to an incredible house where the architecture is just amazing And you look at it, and you just, you can't imagine that somebody could come up with this, much less build something like this, and you're just like, that is a masterpiece. Uh, It might be in the business world, somebody that just handles their business so well, and you just think, this person is a master. It's just what he creates or what she creates is a masterpiece or a teacher that teaches super well, masterpiece. Uh, Let me ask you this question. When you think of masterpieces like this masterpiece, what are some of the words that just come to your mind? What do you think of? What just? This is what a masterpiece is. Amen. Beauty. Amen. Man. What? Oh, God created man. Okay, good. What else? Stirs your heart. Stirs your heart. Yeah, inspiration. inspiration. What else do you think of with a masterpiece? A piece of music. That's right. A beautiful piece of music. One of a kind. Timeless. Timeless. Spiritually moving. moving. Perfection. Story. Story. Great. Those are great words. Those are great words. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you about another artist. And we're introduced to this artist at the beginning of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 1-1. And I just want to show that this idea of masterpiece actually has been around for quite a long time. In Genesis 1.1, we read these words that kick off the Bible. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word for created is a Hebrew word, bara. Bara. Can you say bara? Bara. All right, let's try it again on three. One, two, three. Barah. Okay, you spoke Hebrew today in church, so you go to a really smart church. Barah, anyway, barah has this meaning. It is only when, when uh, barah is used. It's only used of something that God does. This is never used of a human being. You would never call this the barah of Van Gogh. Barah was reserved only for God. Only God can barah. It really speaks of his power, of uh, sort of the majestic, mysterious you know, kind of magical, any other M word you can think of. Sort of this idea of God as this amazing creator that is able to actually create things out of nothing. Nobody creates the way that God does. That's brah. And we read down in verse 27 of chapter 1, you read down and you see another creation. He creates the whole heavens and the whole earth. And then in verse uh, 27 it says, So God created mankind in his image. In his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every time it says created, it is the word brah. And the point is that God does this magnificent creation. He's able to create things that nobody else could create. And in fact, any time that you create something, you really are doing it in the image of God. That's what God is. He's a creator. He he has incredible creativity. Uh, He has the power to do it. He has, you know, all of these adjectives that allow him to be this great creator. Well, when you get to the New Testament, because the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament is written in Greek. In, in the New Testament, there were several words that were used for create, and that's very common. Greek had a lot of words for, for different things. One word is used only twice, and this is of special interest to us today, uh, and this is the word poema. Let's say poema on three. One, two, three. Poema. What word do we get out of poema? Poema. Poem. Okay, and you start to see that poema also contains all these ideas of God's magnificence and the ability that he has power and he can create things out of nothing. But you get sort of this other idea with poema. He is also a designer. There is something amazing about the designs of what he creates. If you were to look at it, you would say oh my gosh, that is a masterpiece. And you've experienced that. Sometimes you look out and you see a sunset and you just go, oh my gosh, that, that is a, that's better than anyone could ever paint. That is just a masterpiece. Well, as I said, poema is used twice in the New Testament. I want to look at both instances. One is going to come around into Ephesians, so that's why we're going to connect here. But the first time it's used is in Romans t- 1.20. And these are the words that it says. It says, uh, and Paul is talking here. He says, for, uh, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. What has been made, if you like underlining in your Bible, that is the word poema, so that people are without excuse And here's really the point that Paul is making. He's saying, if you've ever wondered if God exists, the strongest argument, or at least one of the very best arguments, that he exists is look at what's around. Look at what's in the earth. Look at the creation, and you will see that there must be a creator. And in fact, there was a philosopher back in the 18th 18th century, William Paley, And uh, he created this argument called the argument from design. And he said if you were just walking through the desert and you looked down and you saw a pocket watch, uh, and you'd never seen a pocket watch before. And this is back in the day when many people may not have seen a pocket watch. But if you saw that pocket watch and picked it up and looked at it, you may not know exactly what it's for. You may have no idea how it was put together. But as you looked at it, you would say, there's one thing I can tell you. This just didn't happen. This was created. This was designed. This was put together. It obviously has springs and mechanisms, and there's a a rhythm to it, and it certainly looks like it has a purpose. And just by looking at that, uh, Paley said, you could figure out that there's got to be a creator. There's got to be somebody that made it. There's an artist. Uh, it's interesting. There was a quote that was given years ago. And, you know, when you think about it, when you just look at the created nature, when you look at creativity, and we're going to show you some pictures just of creation, you look at those things and you say, you know, all of this could have just happened, but it sure seems to me like there might have been a design, like there was somebody that was putting things together. And uh, in fact, when you look at some of the more intricate things in our world, and one of them is the human eye, when you look at the human eye, it is hard to believe that the human eye just sort of came into being. Like it was just good luck that we got an eye and that we can see with it. And in fact, let me read a quote, sort of an interesting quote about the eye. It says this, to suppose that the eye with all of its imitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances for the admitting different amounts of light and for the correlation of spherical and chromatic aberration, yeah, we all know what that is, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. And guess who said that? Charles Darwin. He looked at an eye and he said, you know what, if you're going to push against my theory of natural selection... Probably your best argument is to look at the human eye and just say, how in the world did that come together by a natural process? Well, this is basically the argument that Paul gives in 120, and he uses the term poema. When you look at the creation and you see the poema of it, you see it that it's basically a poem that has intention that it's been put together in a design for a purpose, that there's something extremely delicate and intricate about it, you start to say, that couldn't have just happened. That is the poema of God. Okay, so now you're set up to hear it in the other verse that it's used, and that's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If you have your Bibles, go over to Ephesians 2. That's where we're going to land now. Ephesians 2, chapter 10. And let's look at the only other place that poema... Is used. It's used for the creation of these amazing creations that God did that we would look at and go, wow. And it's used for one other group of people. Ephesians 2.10. Let's read this out loud together. It says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, what's the word in there that's poema? How is it translated? Handiwork. It could also be translated, if you wanted to use another English word, it would be the word masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. Now, let me just say something about that, because that's, that's kind of the theme for the rest of the morning, masterpiece. I have taught this before, and now I think I was wrong. This nuance, I think, is not accurate to sort of indicate that every human being is a masterpiece, created uniquely with unique gifts, with unique uh, sort of um, offerings of what can be given. And I think that that's true. I think that's a true statement. I just don't think that's taught in this particular verse because what it neglects is what leads up to verse 10 in chapter 2. In other words, it doesn't take into consideration that verses 1 through 9 were written first and that 10 really is a summary statement of that section of scripture. So I don't want to make that mistake here. I want us to go back and look at verses 1 through 9 and then we'll read the idea that we are God's handiwork because this really is not meant for all of humanity. This is meant for a specific group of people and it's important that we understand what that is. So go back now to verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to plow through this, and we're going to start off, and it's going to look very bleak. It's going to look very dark. You're going to get the blacks and the blues at the beginning. And I just need to say, you cannot push this off. You cannot say, "Guy, I hate people that are like that. I hate, you know, the, or, you know, I hate that people are like that. I don't hate the people, but I hate that people are like that. I hate that I look at the world, and there are these blues and blacks and despair and terrible things, and people are rough and, You know, uncouth and all these kinds of things. Because here's the thing that's super important from the beginning. This is our story. This is my story. This is your story. There's nobody in here that can say, that's not my story. And that's the point that Paul makes at the beginning. So we start in chapter 2, verse 1. And he starts this. It sounds like at first that he's blaming someone else. Because he says, as for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But then listen to this. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we, we, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so Paul, at the beginning, he's going to say, because, again, in the book of Ephesians, doesn't mean a lot to us now, but there was this huge gap between the Jews and the Gentiles, and the question was, when people became Christians, was it different for Jews than Gentiles? The point he's making here is whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, and incidentally, that covers all of humanity, either you are a Jew or not a Jew, all of humanity has this story. All of us start in this place. And it's incredibly important to understand this because here's here's the deal. The good news is not good news if there's not bad news to begin with. In other words, the good news is good because the bad news is really bad. And if you don't get that, you will never appreciate the good news. So I want to walk through these first three verses. Just let's talk about this for a second. And I'm going to ask you to say, you know, are these things true of me? Or have they been true of me? Or is there a part of me that resonates with these kinds of things? So here's what it says. It says, it begins by saying, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, let's me just let talk about being dead for a second. What can a dead person do? This is not a trick question. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Dead people don't do anything. Like, for instance, if you're going to say, listen, I want to have a race against a dead person, but because they have, you know, w- let's admit they've got sort of this, you know, this problem, so it's, it's not really a fair race, so we're going to run 100 meters, but because they're dead, I'm going to put them on the 99-yard line to start, and then we're going to have the race. You know, that's got to be a good enough head start. They have this little handicap, but... You know, that should be fair. If you were to do that, who would win the race? The person who's alive, because the dead person's not going to move at all, right? Dead people can't do anything. Paul chooses this word. It isn't a random word, and he's not just sort of being dramatic by saying, well, you are dead. The idea here, and now this is a spiritual term because he's talking to people that are actually physically alive, but it's a spiritual idea that spiritually, we all start in a dead place, not in a alive place. It's not like you know we've got all this spiritual, you know, sort of energy, and you know we're, we've got we've got all these abilities spiritually, and God gives us this decision to make, and we have the ability to make a decision. What Paul's going to say is we don't have an ability to make a decision. We're spiritually dead. God can come right up to us. He can make this great, great presentation. He can set things up for us, and we still can't respond because we are dead. We're dead. Dead people don't respond. And that's the point he's making. And if you don't like that point, uh, you don't have a problem with me. This is what Paul says. This is what the Bible says, actually. You look at the New Testament. This is what Jesus says. And you need to understand that's where we start. Now, there are three things uh, that happen in our state of being dead. And the first one, and we can call them the deadly S's if you just want to have a way to remember it, but the first thing is that society has an impact on us, and we create a society that has some troubles. All right? So we have talked in here about Hellenization and that that was sort of the, Greek, uh, the expansion of the Greek culture in that world of the day. And remember the big thing that the Greek culture drove was that for people to have an identity that was positive, they had to be perfect. They had to be perfect. They had to be the best, the biggest, the fastest, the smartest, the most beautiful, the most successful. Those were the people that counted. Those were the people that mattered. We sort of said, sounds kind of like Orange County, uh, but society pushes us in that direction. And so the first thing he's going to say is you follow the ways of this world. And he says that's a problem for us is that we look at that and we say, I've got to be this way if I'm going to have an identity, if I'm going to be successful, if I'm going to feel good about myself, if other people are going to love me, I need to follow the ways of this world. And Paul says that's the first mark of being spiritually dead is that you follow the ways of this world. They become the most important thing to you. The second thing he talks about is following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, is that an interesting title? Does anybody know what that means? I do, (laughs) because you pay me to know that kind of stuff. I researched it. That's the only reason I know. But, you know, back in that day, uh, there was this thought, there was this idea that in the air, between the earth and the heavens, in the air were a whole bunch of spiritual beings, demons, demons. And they circulated around, and their job was to be evil. Their job was to distract you from God. Their job was to grab the souls of men and women. That was their job. That was just a common belief in the ancient world. And in fact, it was even said that you could not even insert a pin into the air without hitting one of these demons. And so when it says the ruler of the kingdom of the air, what it's talking about is the person that oversees all these demons. And if you think, well, that's kind of ancient folklore, yes, that's true. But you'll see when we get to Ephesians 6, Paul talks about rulers, authorities, principalities, these spiritual forces that are in the heavenly realms. And you start to see, you know, there's some truth to this. There is, there's a spiritual sort of field around us, much of which is very hostile to us. And this is the ruler of that group of demons. So it's Satan. Satan. And I don't want to spend time on it in this message, but Satan, from the Bible standpoint, is a real character. He's not a made-up character. He's not the, the guy chasing Bugs Bunny around hell with a little pitchfork and, you know, red suit. Uh, Satan, as the Bible describes him, is a terrible foe, and he has one purpose, which is to pry us away from God. That is his only purpose. And here's the deal with Satan. If he can get a stalemate, he doesn't need us to believe in him as long as we won't follow God. If he can get a stalemate with us, he wins. That's the second S, Satan. And the third one is self. And here it talks about um, that we follow flesh's desires and thoughts. And when flesh is used in this word way, it is talking about things that are good that God has given us, natural desires we have, natural sort of, uh, you know... Um, you know things that we pursue, uh, but they become warped in some way. Uh, we start to not treat them in the way that we should. And then Satan sort of supercharges them. They become a problem in our life. So let's take sex, for instance. Sex is something that God created. It's actually meant to be a good thing. In our culture, it's become so dirty that even to say the word sex, for many people, immediately has negative connotations. But it wasn't meant that way from the beginning. It was supposed to be a beautiful gift that God gave humanity. It was supposed to be one of the precious gifts that God gave. But what happens is that we take this gift, and it has this power in our life, and then we start to elevate it, or we let it get out of control. It starts to consume us. The Bible says Satan comes in. He starts to really jack it up so that it becomes a supercharged desire. And all of a sudden, what you have is you don't have a beautiful thing anymore. You have something that is used to abuse people you have something that people become addicted to they can't think or do anything other than that you have tons of guilt that pours out of this gift that god originally gave us and you can see that this thing that was meant for good at the beginning now has become perverted and is not good anymore and it's not only sex you can do it with almost any gift that god's given us food can become that way it can become that way with our our desire to be successful at something. Being successful is a good thing, but all of us know that it can become too much, and all of a sudden, my success means you need to fail for me to be successful. Or, you know, uh, gathering money, making money is not a bad thing, but you have all kinds of people that hoard and become greedy and so forth. You see that in all of these things, they can become very negative. And the point that Paul's making here, when you're dead in your sins and transgressions, these S's, society, Satan, and self, all of a sudden, all these things uh, start to work against you and start to pull you down. Uh, years ago, I, was, uh, I had a friend, and uh, he was not a believer at this point, but he was coming to church, he was trying to figure out things, and he had done a couple of really crummy things in his marriage, and his wife had left him, uh, but... Uh, she was interested in some reconciliation, and he was kind of interested in it, and we talked about it, and then he said, well, I think we should just be separated for a while. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's certainly an avenue you can take, and you know, maybe that will lead to reconciliation. But I looked at him, and I said, you know what this means, though? This means that while you are separated from your wife, it means no sex. And he looked at me like I was from the moon. He's like, What? I said, well, what this means is the one person God would bless you having sex with is your wife. You are separating from her. It means no sex. And he said, you're crazy. That's not the way it works. And what had happened is the deadly S's had just totally, it had enveloped his heart so much he couldn't even see that that might be the way that it was. And so these things work in concert with each other, and they are meant to pull us away. And finally, the final statement that's made here is that we deserve wrath. And that is a very frightening thing to say when it says that God's wrath we deserve. And let me just talk to you about this for a second because uh, for some of you, that conjures up such a terrible image that God finally is fed up with you. He's now so angry about it that he actually hates you And he's going to judge you, and you're going to get it now. And for everything that you've sort of thrown in God's face, now his anger is unleashed, and you're getting it. And I just want to say that is never the New Testament picture of God. That is not the way that he works. He's not like this person that you've just ticked off so much that he explodes in rage and anger on you. In fact, I heard a great illustration uh, that I think maybe works better for you to understand how wrath works. God looks at us, and he sees our sin, and he sees the damage that our sin does, and part, part of him is a just God, a just and holy God, and he looks at that, and there is something that says, that's not the way it should be. That deserves a punishment. If things are right and holy and fair... When bad things happen, there's got to be some penalty that is paid for it. And so it isn't that he's getting fed up and he's sick and tired and now he explodes in anger. It's just the way the justice of God works, that wrath is the natural reaction to when things don't work. But uh, picture this. Uh, A year and a half ago, my dad died. And he had smoked all of his life. And eventually he got congenitive heart failure. And literally, his lungs just filled up with fluid. And that was, it was a painful way to die, no dignity in it. And uh, when I uh, think about it, uh, and this is not a slam on any of you that do this, but I hate smoking. I hate smoking. I mean, I, I, it just because it, it, it basically, I look at it and go, it robbed my dad of his life. I hate that my dad smoked. I mean, it was one of his character flaws is that he would not kick that habit and put that back and put that down. I hate it. I hate smoking. I hate that he smoked. But you know what? Never hated my dad. I never hated my dad. And when God looks at us, he sees our sin. He sees the damage that our sin creates for us and for others and in this world, and he hates that. He hates the sin. He hates that we do the sin. He hates it. And unless there is a separation from the sin and the sinner, the wrath of God will also fall on me. But here's the great news, and this is where we go to the next several verses. So look at verse 4. Here's the great news. God has a solution to this problem. The point is, we don't start as God's masterpiece. That's a really important thing to understand. We don't start in that place. God has to create a masterpiece out of this situation for us. So in verse 4, it says these words. it really is. Of all of the conjunctions, of all of the buts in the New Testament, this is the biggest. Because it explains a situation, not only that we are in peril, we're in danger, we're under God's wrath, but we're dead and we can't fix it. We can't do anything about this. We're in a huge pile of trouble. But fortunately, we get this word, but God doesn't leave us there. And you see immediately that God is still able to love us in this condition. But because of his great love, not just love, it's like love that is just gushing out. He can't contain it. You try to put it in a suitcase and it's spilling out. It is the love that just pours out on because of his great love. And his rich mercy, you know, it's like he's got so much mercy, so many riches of mercy that, again, it's just spilling out this mercy. It's just the way that he sees it. He sees Kevin Pike in trouble, and he says, man, he deserves. He deserves to be punished. But I can't leave him there. I can't let him do it. I love him so much. My mercy just spills out. It is, you know, maybe it's the picture of a parent with a child where the child is totally going haywire and crazy and deserves punishment but the parent just can't do it and says I love my child so much I will give mercy again and that's the picture that we have here is God great love rich in mercy and you start to see that he reverses these problems that we've had so uh, we were condemned we are by nature deserving wrath we're condemned but instead he shows mercy he gives mercy he says, I know that's what you deserved, but I'm going to give you another chance. I know that's the direction. you know that, That's how it should play out. If I was going to be fair, that's what you get. I can't do that. Rich in mercy. He gives mercy to you instead of condemnation. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we see that we were dead, but he makes us alive. In other words, uh, the the, uh, old term for this is that we are quickened. I sort of like that, that we are quickened. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes into us while we're dead, and he quickens us so that we're made alive. Now we can respond. We may still not respond the right way all the time. Sometimes we won't but we are quickened. We are sort of brought back to life. That's the idea here. And then finally, it says we're enslaved to these deadly S's, but now we're seated with Christ. And being seated with Christ means we have a relationship with him. He continues to work in our life. He continues to build us up. He continues to help us through when these S's, when the society and Satan and self are sort of doing these things, he sort of pushes us in the other direction. It's an amazing statement of what God does for us. And so we look at it and we say, you know, Vincent Van Gogh, he had this idea that the world is really hard and that his life was hard and he knew that he was really imperfect, but there's got to be hope. There's got to be some way around this. And he was right. He's right. There is a way around it. God has provided it. And he says that by grace, he has saved us. By grace, he has saved us. And so here's the thing that's important to understand. The masterpiece is not all of humanity. They are the men and women and children that God has now saved and brought out of the dark night and has given mercy and has given life and has seated us with Christ. That is the masterpiece. For those of you that have accepted Jesus, that are Christ followers, you are the masterpiece. It's how the New Testament paints it at this point. And if you've never done that, if you're listening to this and thinking, I've never done that, I guess I never knew it, I didn't understand it. The great news is that God offers this to you and says, this is for you. This is for you right now. I want you to do something. I want you to um, take this card. I think you were given it when you came in. It's just a picture. I don't know if they're all of the same thing. I I have the one that's up here. Do you all have the same one? Starry Night? Some of you have different ones. Okay, they're all masterpieces. And I want you to do this. I want you to write on the back of the card, I am God's masterpiece. I am God's masterpiece. Now, uh, for some of you, you've accepted that. That feels comfortable to say. You believe it. And you write those words and feel good about that. For some of you, it is hard to get those words on there. You might be able to write them, but you don't feel them. You don't think those thoughts. I am God's masterpiece. And I want to give you... Uh, maybe a reason that it's hard to write that. One is perhaps, perhaps you still let the world define who you are. And so because you're not perfect and the world says you need to be perfect to be worthwhile, you look at it and you say, I just feel lame. I feel so out of step. I feel so worthless. I feel like I can't get anything done that's of, of significance. And you're letting the world define who you are. When God says, no, I'm, I, I'll tell you right now, in Christ, you are a masterpiece. That is not true of you. For some of you, you can't get past something you've done in your past. There is some huge hole in your past, and maybe it was a huge mistake that you made. Maybe you really hurt somebody else. Maybe you really hurt yourself. Maybe it was something that was done to you, and you know logically there's no reason you should feel guilty, but you do. You feel totally guilty. You feel dirty and worthless. And Satan just screams that in your ear all the time. He's called the accuser, and he takes something like that, and he'll never let it rest. He just keeps pressing you. You're a loser. You're dirty. You're disgusting. You'll never amount to anything. And you can't write the word, I am a masterpiece, because Satan has your ear. Or maybe it's just the way that you see things, and you've always thought, you know, I can do this on my own. I don't need God's help. I can do this on my own. I will do it on my own. I don't need God to tell me I'm a masterpiece. I'll make myself a masterpiece. The problem is, we can never do it. We just can never do it. Not if we're honest with ourselves. What God tells us is we are a masterpiece, but it is his work in us and not our work in ourselves. He does it. He does it. And if you're not willing to accept that, you'll never, you'll never really step into that truth. I am a masterpiece. God has done that work for me. He has made me a masterpiece, as beautiful as anything in his creation. And so here's what I'd like to do. And um, I hope that some of you will do it if you feel like this is a good thing. Uh, I'd like you to just, if you feel like, you know what, I just need to reaffirm that I'm a masterpiece, because I sure don't feel that way at times, but now I know I am. Uh, Other people tell me I'm not, but I need to say that I am, because God says it's true, and what God says is ultimately true. And if that's you, I'd like you to just stand up where you are and just say, I am a masterpiece, and then you can sit back down. Just stand up and say, I am a masterpiece, and then you can sit down, and, and it, there's something just good about saying that. So uh, I'm going to give you, I know that, you know, sometimes this is sort of a hard thing to do, but it, it's something really powerful. So if God's gripping your heart and you're saying, you know what, I am a masterpiece, and I'm going to just let everybody know it, I'm a masterpiece, uh, then I'd like you to do it. And I'll tell you what, I'll start. I am a masterpiece. I'm a masterpiece. Great. I'm a masterpiece. Fantastic. I'm a masterpiece. Yes, you are. A masterpiece. Great, great, great. Yes, you are. I'm a masterpiece. You absolutely are. I'm a masterpiece. Great. Fantastic. You are. Yes. Great. Satan never wants you to say that word. Our world will never allow you to really say that. Even you will stop yourself from saying it. It is God's truth. He declares it over you. He looks at you with tears in his eyes and he goes masterpiece. My masterpiece. Anyone else? You are a masterpiece. Will you stand? And I'd like you to just hold up the card and I'd like to pray over you and then we'd like to sing something and then we'll be done for today. Lord, we hold this card, and this card actually is not a masterpiece. It just represents that truth. Fact of the matter is, we are your masterpiece. Those of us that have come to you, Jesus, those of us that have accepted the life you give and the mercy you pour out and have invited us to sit with you, we are the masterpiece, and we thank you for that. That's our identity. And I pray this week that we would go out in strength and think that we'd remember those thoughts we wouldn't push it away and when the world tells us no you're totally imperfect and you don't match up we would recognize no i'm a masterpiece or when satan whispers you are such a loser don't you remember what you did we'll battle that and say absolutely not that's not true i am a masterpiece Jesus, you have done a magnificent work in our lives. We are so grateful for that. We claim now that we are a masterpiece, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please remain standing and sing the song.